Welcome to the show today, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. We have a very special guest on Unaborted today. I mean, I say that about all the guests because I have a reason I invite them all on, but our guest today is author and speaker Nancy Piercy, uh, author of, uh, I believe most recently, one of her more popular books, Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality, uh, as well as Total Truth, The Soul of Science, and uh, Finding Truth. She's a professor and scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University. She's been quoted in The New Yorker and Newsweek highlighted as one of the five top women apologists and hailed in The Economist as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. Um, there are some books, you guys, as you know, I talk a lot about authors and ideas and books on the show. There are some books that are so important um, in our current political and cultural moment um, that I highlight as things that you need to read to understand the philosophical, political, and dare I say spiritual landscape before us. And one of those books is Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. I have read this book. You need to read this book. If you want to get a 60,000-foot view of the playing field in this country ideologically and the undergirding premises, tenets, and alternative religious premises of the religion of secular progressivism, there is no better book than Love Thy Body Today, which will open your eyes to something you hear me say on this show all the time, that the culture war was always really just a proxy war for the spiritual war. And there's a place for the church to contend for those truths, for that gospel, and for that biblical narrative in the public square by offering a better perspective and a better invitation to what our bodies mean, what their purpose is, and what it means to be an image bearer of God. And so I think this interview and conversation is going to really bless you. Um, and buckle up, you're in for a treat. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. <laughs> Welcome to the show today, Nancy. Thank you so much for, for joining us. We really appreciate it. I So I read your book, Love Thy Body, uh, I think last year. Uh, it was one of those books that I had on my shelf for like, you know, years. It's like, I got to get to that sometime. You know, I got to get to that sometime. And actually, my wife read your book first, uh, which usually she doesn't beat me to books. And then mm -hmm. and she was like, you need to read this, babe. And I was like, OK, OK. So I prioritized it. And uh, and it, it really blessed me, Nancy. And we, we talk a lot about on this show about how the we're not contending against an alternative political vision. As Christians, we're contending against an alternative religion. Uh, I call it secular humanism, secular progressivism, secular liberalism. It is a religious system. They operate very religiously and often more dogmatically than most Christians. And your book helped expose so much of what is fundamental religious premises that are operative and, motiva and motivating this political vision, this progressivism. And so I, I, th I think that people who haven't read your book are really going to be blessed by our conversation. But before we get sort of nitty gritty, I wanted to ask you the question, Nancy, what led you to write Love Thy Body? What, what was happening in your life, in the country, in your walk with the Lord, in your career that made you write that book and focus it as narrow and specific as you did? Uh, well, there's two answers to that. The one is, of course, you've got personal relationships with people who are struggling with this. There are a lot of pseudonyms in Love Thy Body because of people who weren't ready to go public with their story, but they were willing to tell me. Hmm. And so wow. I have stories of people, you know, Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction, 
or Christians, uh, <laughs> some of my female graduate students who've had abortions and who gave me their stories. And uh, people, who, uh, people who struggle with gender dysphoria and detransitioners, people who had de- mm. transitioned to the opposite sex and then detransitioned, you know, decided they made a big mistake. Yeah. Um, and, and even intersex people, I was even contacted while I was writing the book uh, by an intersex woman. And of course, you know, they're very rare. So you, yeah. you do not get their personal story very often. So, right. so one reason is that it was very close to home with fa- uh, family members. You know, I can say that without wow. revealing who they are, but you know, fam- family members, people close to me. Um, so that was one reason. But the second reason was a little bit more what you just talked about, which was the desire to help uh, people understand the secular liberal view. Because as well, you know, I'm at heart an apologist, right? That's what I do. I yeah. teach apologetics at Houston Baptist University. And so I realized there's a form of apologetics here in the sense of we need to identify the secular liberal worldview and know how yeah. to argue against it. It's, it's as you as you well know, uh, you can't just say the Bible says in our current climate. Yeah. You know, you, you have to look at the underlying world view. And yeah. the, the way I came up with the notion that the, the key issue is really is our view of the body. And most people are surprised by that because they think, well, Christianity has a low view of the body, right? This world doesn't matter. All that matters yeah, yeah. is the spiritual world. And it, I agree with my book is actually the Christian Christianity has a much higher view of the value and dignity of the human body. Mm. And the way I got into that was a little bit indirectly. Um, I became a Christian at Labrie, which is the ministry yeah. of Francis Schaefer, in Switzerland when That's Schaefer right. was still there. <laughs> um, yeah. One of his main arguments that was really prophetic was the idea that truth itself has been split. And he said this is the main reason we have a hard time communicating with the secular world. And right. like many philosophers, he used the metaphor of two stories in a building. Right? So yeah. there's a lower story and an upper story. And in the lower story, we put um, facts. You know. And, and, by the way, and I'm, I, this is just an analysis of how secular people think. He wasn't making this up. Sure. Secular people, in the secular world, it's called a fact-value split. Meaning fact-value split, that's right. Yeah, so that's, that's what you'll encounter it in the secular world. Schaefer didn't use that language yet, but... As soon as I translated it, this was in my book, my earlier book, Total Truth. I said, hey, guys, this is what right. we know as the fact value split. And everyone yeah. went, oh, I get that. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> because that, was a, that phrase was better known. At any rate, right. he said, you know, uh, the modern world has decided that the only thing that is reliable knowledge is in the lowest story. That's science, facts, rationality, and so on. Follow well, the science, you... right, Nancy? <laughs> Follow oh, the science. <laughs> well, <laughs> we're in a postmodern world where that's no longer quite so true. That's right. So we talk a lot about this on this show, Nancy. We I, I poke fun at a lot of things, obviously, but you know, you know, the, isn't it interesting? The people that say follow the science typically are the people who um, shut down the country, who quarantined the abused with their abusers, who put face diapers on four-year-olds, um, who mandated you to take the Fauci ouchie, uh, who believe men can be women and women can be men, and that preborn babies are not persons. And as I say, I'm like, Nancy, that, that sounds more like your philosophical view of the person that's masquerading as science. And so back to you, because that's so much of what you talk about in your book. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's that's a very good point. So if you're an enlightenment person, 
you care about if you know a modernist you care about the lowest story which is science and uh, but anything that cannot be uh, studied under a test tube it, stuffed into a test tube or studied yeah. under a microscope is thrown into the upper story where it's considered just you know personal subjective private and the reason Schaefer was interested in it is that this is what most people do when they first hear the Christian message. They think, oh, well, you're just talking about your personal upper story experience, what gets you through the night, what gives you a sense of meaning. And he right. says they don't even hear it as an objective truth claim. So mm. that was his main interest in the, in the upper lower story split. So what I realized is this: if you have a split view of truth, well, then it's going to affect everything. And so when I started picking up questions like abortion and analyzing the non-Christian worldview, I saw that secular bioethicists make a split between the body and the person. That's their language. And what they do is they say, well, the body is in the lower story because that's what we know by science, right? We study the right. fetus scientifically, you know, chromosomally, physiologically, anatomically, the fetus is human. Yep. And you will, you know, you will not find uh, secular bioethicists who deny that today, which is amazing. Because if you talk to That's ordinary right. people, they don't realize that yet. But yeah. on the academic level, you do not find any secular bioethicist who denies that the fetus, that the excuse me, who denies that human life begins uh, from conception. So yep. the question then is, how do they get around that in order to yeah. support abortion? And what they say is, well, a fetus is human, but it's not a person. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. To which I say, up. well, get behind me, Roger B. Taney, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, at plus, plus they all have a different concept of personhood. Yeah. That's, that's the difficulty, because once you separate personhood from biology, then what do you base it on? Every yep. bioethicist bases it at a different place. They draw the yep. line at a different place. And that's so right. you will find, you know, probably a majority of them will still say, oh, it's, it's somehow before birth, right? Yep. But many of them will say, no, it's after birth that the fetus becomes a person. Yep. For example, the famous scientist who discovered the double helix structure of DNA, Crick and Watson, who are kind of household names, have both come out publicly saying we should give the, the, the newborn three days of genetic testing. And only wow. if it passes the test does it qualify as a person. And even yep. more radically peter singer who is a bioethicist at princeton yep. has said uh this is on his website right out there um he says even three years of age is a gray yep. area that's right meaning yep. you know how much cognitive functioning does a toddler have yep so that's where we are today is where our professional bioethicists agree that life begins in conception that's not where the debate is anymore and by the way a lot of christians this is new to them like I, I'm constantly hear, like, hearing from Christians say, oops, I need to yep. revamp the way I argue this. The issue now is personhood. And yep. at what point does the uh, when, what point does the fetus go from being human to being yep. a person? Yep. And you make this point wonderfully in your book, Nancy, that um, is, as soon as you separate the human body, the human being from the person, then human value becomes subjective. Because who gets to determine then the litmus test, the criteria, <laughs> the checkboxes that you have to meet in order to meet this thing called 
personhood, right? And and how many criteria in accidental properties and functions? Is it three? Is it five? Is it is it is it all of them? Is it some of them? Is it all at one time? Uh, and, and so the whole concept of human equality and human rights becomes subjective. Might makes right. Okay, we're, we're right back to Darwin and secular humanism. Um, but one thing I wanted to hone in with the time that we have together, Nancy, is I really wanted you to open up our eyes and the, the ears of our, our listeners to understand that this old heresy of Gnostic dualism or body self-dualism, which the church has declared a heresy for centuries. <laughs> uh, just a reminder, we're contending against the spiritual principalities uh, in the culture um, that it's really the same operative religious precept behind so much of the creeds of progressivism, of, of the uh, political goals and agendas of secular progressivism, whether that's uh, transgenderism, or homosexuality, or gay marriage, or abortion, or euthanasia, uh, or transhumanism. Um, and so, and the reason I say this, and then I, I want to defer right back to you, Nancy, is, be, is for one of, the, one of these reasons. There are a lot of pro-lifers who are against abortion, but they're for gay marriage, as if gay marriage is even a thing. That's a misnomer. There's no such thing as gay marriage. Um, or they're for uh, transgender rights. Um, but but they, they acknowledge the baby in the womb has rights. They, they don't like abortion, but they start falling prey to other culture war priorities of the left wing in America. And what they're failing to realize is that they're entertaining or giving credence to or allowing the same principle and precepts that they reject with abortion uh, to actually be allowed to thrive in these other culture war issues. And so sometimes I want to shake these Christians and pro-lifers, Nancy, and be like, it's the same worldview. It's the same heretical, dangerous, kooky view of the human person. And so can you just start going through some of these issues you talk about in Love Thy Body and just start teaching us how how the same idea of body self-dualism or this the two-story um, fact-value split is the operative principle behind these various issues? Uh, that is really the heart of my book. I'm, so I'm glad you're focusing on that. And that is um, – well, I'll, I'll quote Francis Schaeffer. He said, one reason we're, in, we're not effective on all of these cultural war issues is that we deal in bits and pieces. That was his phrase. We deal with them in bits and pieces. We, yes. memorize, we memorize the arguments for this issue, and then we, you know, like pro-life, for example, and then we memorize right. the arguments for this issue and, and for that issue, and we don't see the underlying worldview. And well so, said. So take us, take us up here. <laughs> right, right. Uh, my goal was to show the underlying worldview. And, and again, it's surprising because we think, we think if you're a secular person and you don't think God exists, you don't think the spiritual realm exists, um, the expectation is you would think the body was really important, right? Mm, because right. the material world is all that exists. The physical exists, world yeah. is all that exists. But you can think the physical world is all that exists and still have a low view of it. In other words, yeah. you can still think that this physical world is a product of mindless, purposeless forces, and therefore it has yeah. no intrinsic purpose. No telos. So, yeah. No, no, yeah, to, to, to use a technical term, the teleological view yeah. of nature, that, that telos means a goal or purpose. And right. in fact, I will, uh, I'll give you a, a quote that kind of, this is my favorite quote because it summarizes it so well. And it's uh, by a woman who's a lesbian. You, you probably know her. Uh, she's an outspoken, well-known public intellectual. Her name is Camille Paglia. 
Yeah. And yeah, yeah. A lot of Christians, a lot of Christians know Camille Paglia. <laughs> but the reason they know her is because she is a bit of an iconoclastic feminist, meaning she does She's not brutally honest. Yeah. <laughs> she does she does not agree that sex is just a social construction. She says, no, no, no. Ma uh, nature made us male and female. She even has a line where she says, humans are designed, design. <laughs> humans are designed for sexual reproduction. Hmm. And then you say, well, how do you justify being a lesbian then? Uh, and by the way, she's now come out as trans. Uh, I, I don't if you've been watching, she's <laughs> now decided, she, yeah, yeah, she's, she's said in a couple of public places now that she, she identifies wow. as trans. So, but either way, homosexual or trans, um, if you think nature made us male and female, how do you justify that? And here's how she puts it. Um, she says, well, nature made us male and female, but why not defy nature? Uh. After all, <laughs> yeah, yeah, after yeah. all fate, <laughs> and listen to how she put it, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. Yep. So yeah, the, yeah, the logic is so clear there that if our bodies are products of mindless, material, purposeless forces, then they have no purpose that we are morally obligated to respect. They right. give us no clue to our identity. They, they do not tell us, they have no moral message that tells yep. us how to live. What you may, we may do with them as we see fit. So there's yep. the connection between uh, you know, your, your view of origins if we're products of mindless, purposeless forces. Well, why not do whatever you want in this life? Yeah, pure will, the exercise of pure will. Right, exactly. And and what you just said about Camille Paglia, Nancy, it just sounds like Margaret Sanger in 1914, mm -hmm. right? Her first published um, piece before the birth control review and before she had to flee to England before getting arrested for breaking the Comstock laws in New York City. Uh, Sanger's first published writings was in a journal called Woman Rebel. Yes. There you go. I'm rebelling. Yeah. With the tagline, no gods, no masters. Uh, and Margaret Sanger was a communist socialist, Eugene Debs acolyte who wanted to upend society and bring in a communist takeover of America and just wanted to use birth control and, you know, sexually explicit material to titillate the masses and break down societal mores. The woman was a radical, but it, it, it's always been the same thing, whether it's Camille Paglia today or Margaret Sanger then. I, I, I determine my own destiny. I am my own God. So I, I can liberate myself, even from the constraints of human nature itself, and reinvent myself, uh, right? It's like, oh, wow, that sounds like the first lie in Genesis 3, Nancy. Uh, Eat the apple, do it my way, and ye shall be as gods. <laughs> well, I don't know if you realize this, but uh, Margaret Sanger, uh, her ideas are also firmly rooted in Darwinian evolution. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, she had book. a she had a, a, a sexual crazy affair with Havelock Ellis, whose personal mentor was Francis Galton, who coined the term eugenics, who was first cousins with Charles Darwin. So I yes. mean, yeah, yes. I mean Margaret Sanger was a was a Darwinist. <laughs> well, and if you read her book, she's very explicit about her commitment to Darwinism. She yep. says she was trying to come up with a view of sexuality that was Darwinian. She tells yep. you that it's quite blank, and she yep. says. Uh, and you talked earlier about how this is really a religious view. Even uh, she has a she has one quote that I use a lot because she she literally says that uh, sexual liberation, her her words, is the only path to an earthly paradise. Yeah, that's right. That's how yeah, she puts it. 
Yep, to an earthly uh, so, paradise. Yep. But so once again, it's what you said. It's a religious view, and it's rooted ultimately in your view of nature, a Darwinian yep. view of nature. Right. Yep. Yep. So, so you just beautifully encapsulated Nancy, kind of the sixty thousand foot view of, um, you know, what the two-story worldview of the person or, or body self-dualism entails. But if we're speaking very specifically, get, like, give us the, like, you know, the five-sentence summary or whatever on how each of these issues absorb and apply the premises of body self-dualism, if you know what I mean. So, for example, transgenderism. <laughs> That's you know, explain obvious. to our listeners. How, yeah, that one's the most obvious. But but how do they absorb and implement that worldview? Yeah, I find it's easiest sometimes to start with that because everyone's so familiar with it. And because transgender activists argue explicitly that the yeah. body has nothing to do. That with, they say, I'm not you know, my body. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was a there, uh, there was a transsexual. One of the examples I give in my book, Lovely Body, was a uh, transsexual, um, a male to female transsexual who uh, was raising money on a, kick, uh, a Kickstarter video, which was going to be titled, I am not my body. <laughs> that, that was the actual title of this document, a documentary right. of her life. Um, yep. uh, but at BBC, BBC had, has a very good documentary uh, called Transgender Kids, uh, in which it says at the heart of the debate is the idea that your mind can be at war with your body at war with your body and of wow. course in that war it's the mind that wins yep. there's another bbc doc uh it was a bbc social it's, it's, that's the name of this one the program it's called social and it featured a young woman who identified as non-binary and she said uh it doesn't matter what meat skeleton you're born in what matters wow. is your what matters is your um is your feelings and even wow. down to gender gender uh You've heard of gender neutral parenting. So yeah. <laughs> there's, there's actually a website for these parents. And on the website, it says point blank, there is no such thing as biological sex. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, that sex is a purely social construction. So yeah. it's gotten to the point where, well, and then if, if you saw it, uh, this, is, this is going all the way down to kindergartners. Blue's Clues had a gay pride parade animation if you saw that that's right it, that, that's targeting toddlers or here's another example I, I just read it in the washington post the washington post had an article where they quoted a curriculum that's being used uh first graders first graders and it, the curriculum tells teachers to say it doesn't matter no it starts with i think it says even if you have parts that some people call boy parts <laughs> Notice they, they didn't even say boy parts. What some people call boy parts doesn't mean you're a boy. And if you have, you know, even if you have parts that some people call girl parts, does not mean you're a yep. girl. What matters is what you feel. So that's the easiest one to show because it's very explicit. The, even on secular liberal websites, you got, you're starting to see people say the transgender ideology represents body hatred. Have you seen that? Wow. It's body hatred. Yeah. And I often end my, when I speak on my book, uh, I often end, this is my favorite anecdote. Um, there was a girl, again, a very secular liberal website. A girl had transitioned to male at age 11. She had lived as a trans boy for three years. Jeez, uh, 
came then came back and uh, then came back and accepted herself as a girl. But here's what she said, and again, this is a direct quote. She said, "The turning point came when I realized it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body." Mm, I thought, wow. the, the, this interview came out after my book had already appeared, but it would have been a wow. great. Well, it's a book called it's Love not My conversion body. therapy to learn to love your body. Wow. Wow. From the mouth of babes. You know, she's 14. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, not on a Christian website, not from a Christian family or anything. So, yeah. so even secular people are starting to realize that the core of the issue is how you view the body, whether the body, body is truly part of the authentic self and whether you yeah. get value, give it value and dignity. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Um, and you, you return to that point many times in your book, Nancy, about how the Christian worldview offers a much more cohesive and comprehensive and positive view of the body that affirms um, the realities that we daily live with. We have aches, we have pains, we have a body, we experience our bodies. And transgenderism and secular liberalism says that those things, that doesn't matter. Your body doesn't matter. It's just this shell. It's just this shell that, that you, the real you, reside in. You know, you, your thoughts, aims, consciousness, and desires, not your body. Uh, and so, you know, Christianity says, no, your, your body was made as part of you. You are both body and soul. And the Bible gives a very affirmative view of the body as well. And so from a Christian worldview, I wanted you to maybe share uh, a couple verses if you've got them off the top of your head. But you, you point to several scriptures that that communicate the cohesive nature of our body soul union versus about how like my my uh, you know I'm in anguish and uh, you know internally and so my bones ache like these kind of interesting yeah. ways where the scripture ties physiological experiences with physical manifestations. Uh, anyways, I thought maybe you'd like to share some about that for Christians to understand. Oh, wow, yes, the Christianity, our faith, our Savior, is very pro-body. Yeah, yeah uh, unfortunately, I don't have them memorized, but it's many of them are psalms. A lot of the psalms will say, yeah. you know, when I refuse to repent of my sin, you know, my body wasted away with my groaning all day long. You know, right, or, right. You know, with a, uh, that God's Word is, is you know, strength to our soul and health to our body. There's mm, a whole right. slew, whole slew of, of verses wow. that, um, that say that. Treating, so, treating the soul and the body as a cohesive unit. Yeah, we're a psychosocial, psychophysical unity, um, where the, the ex, what, we, what we express externally is, is an expression of what's happening internally. There's no, dis, there's no disjunction between them. Yeah. Or here's, Here's what I find that uh, you know, Christians almost need to be taught uh, specific language that they can practice. Uh, mm -hmm. I'll give you an example um, to, to, to let people know that there's lots and lots of stories in my book, Love Thy Body. It's not just uh, yeah. extended moral arguments. So yes. one of my favorite stories is a young woman who lived as a lesbian for many years. Um, and today is married and has two kids. And you know, what was the change? Here's how she puts it. I came to trust that God had made me female for a reason. And I wanted to honor my body by living in accord with the creator's design. Hmm. And so I wow. pull out quotes like that. Honor my body yeah. by living in accord with the creator's design. It's incredibly positive language. 
Uh, one of the other favorite anecdotes is also in the chapter on homosexuality, and at this time it was a young man who had been exclusively hom homosexual his entire life. You have to say that because it, if you if if you um, give up the homosexuality deal, the critics will say, well, you were never exclusively homosexual. You were probably bi, bisexual. And so right. he says, no, I was exclusively homosexual. And what's interesting about his story is that he, he was raised in a gay-affirming family and attended a gay-affirming church. So he didn't wow. think there was anything wrong. He was not driven by shame or guilt, which is another thing critics will often say. Yes. And he said, no, no, no. It was driven by a new view of the body. He said, wow. isn't this interesting? <laughs> he said, I came to realize that, um, well, I, th that God had made me male. You know, that's a body I had. You know, I wasn't trying to change my feelings, which rarely works. Yeah. But what I, but what I did is I acknowledged what I already had, which was a male mm -hmm. body. And it was clear yeah. to me that God had created me to interact sexually with a woman. And that was true quite irregardless of whatever feelings yeah. I might have. Yeah. And so here's how he put it. He said, I came to accept my body as a good gift from God. Wow. And eventually... Eventually, he said, my feelings started to follow suit. And by the way, he's now married and has three kids and is a wow. Christian ethics professor yes, in, yes. in London. That's beautiful. But, but his point, do you see what his point, the, bar, the broader point there, there, the worldview behind this is, you know, are we products of blind material forces yep. or are we the product of a loving God? And therefore, our bodies are intrinsically good. That we're, yep. you know, God, is, God is a good creator and what he creates is intrinsically good. And the fall does not negate that. You know, the fall, I, I run into people who think, well, yeah, it was originally good, but now. Right, but not anymore. Uh, I get students who grow up in churches where they've been taught, you're worthless, you're nothing, you know, you, your life is meaningless. Um, and that's not biblical. Yeah. Uh, it's, biblically speaking, the universe, it's like a great masterpiece, you know, the Mona Lisa. It's like yeah. a child coming up and scribbling a little on, with magic marker. Well, you yep. can still see the beauty of the original masterpiece. And that's yep. how we need to look at creation. You can still see the beauty, uh, the goodness of God's original good creation. And that's yep. what we need to stress with people. But since we mentioned Schaefer, I'll mention him again. He used to say, um, the problem is we start with Genesis 3 instead of Genesis 1. Hmm. We start with the fall, right? The typical revivalist message is you're yep. a sinner. You need to get saved which wow. is true but what it communicates is your intrinsic identity is corrupted destroyed you know marred defaced mm. by sin right whereas if you start with genesis 1 you start with we're made in god's image yes. so we have great the value purpose. and dignity yeah. and purpose um and <laughs> that's our essential identity sin does yeah. not completely get rid of that because if even genesis if you read genesis after the fall uh, Genesis 5, it reiterates again that they were made, Adam and Eve were made in God's image. In, in his yep. image, he created them. So it's clear that he's, he is saying, okay, this is after the fall, but you're yep. still made in God's image. And yep. so Christianity has a much higher view yeah. of the wow. human dignity than any secular view. And yep. this is this positive message. It's the way we need to approach all of these issues. Is That's Christianity. So uh, over against the secular view, actually treats a human being with much higher dignity yes. and, and status than any secular view. I try to tell people, 
guys, you don't realize, you don't realize what you have. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> There's no other philosophy or religion that gives human beings as much that's dignity right. as Christianity does. That's right. It's a very high view of the body. And, and that's why you had Christians uh, adopting and rescuing all of the infants that were exposed to the elements by the Romans because it was a girl and they wanted a boy or there was something defective with the child. Uh, and Christians used to, at least, Nancy, be on the front lines of standing against a culture of death that was operating off of a very low view of the body uh, and, and, and an elitist system that also determined certain litmus tests for who was in and out of the personhood family or who was worthy of protection and who wasn't. And throughout your whole book, and for you guys listening to this, you need to go read Love Thy Body, Nancy just weaves together how this worldview and view of the body um, uh, really animates all of these various uh, culture war issues today, uh, even including transhumanism, right? If the real person is not a body, then why can't we just upload or download our consciousness into the cloud and live forever? Now, that's not going to be possible because real people are both body and soul. But if you have that view of the body, that it's just a shell, and so if we can liberate that, per if we can, if we can, if we can rip the person out of the shell of the body. Uh, then why not just put it in the cloud and live forever? Or, or why can't we just start adding robotic features and create a super race of human beings? Uh, and so you, you weave all this together so beautifully in your book. But I, I want to talk about uh, what my favorite uh, section in your book. Um, and because, and here's why. Um, I think you perfectly explained um, how this low view of the body and how body self-dualism ends up putting in place the premises that will justify our own enslavement. Um, and it's your section called A Freedom That Dissolves Freedom. Um, and I, I think I've memorized it, and, and I want to share it back to you, Nancy, because I want you to kind of lecture off of it and, and provide mm -hmm. anything. But it, it, I, I, I literally dwell on it on a weekly basis because I found it to be the most profound section of your book. And so much of what I do as a pro-life speaker and culture warrior, Nancy, is, is I try to create a public spectacle of the abortion industry and their ideas. I, I want to make their ideas look so beyond the pale and ludicrous mm -hmm. um, that it shifts the whole culture right. That, that I, I, I do want pro-abortion ideology to be laughed out of the public square, to be such a ludicrous proposition to entertain that it would be mocked in the public square because I want bad ideas to be mocked because ideas mm -hmm. have consequences and bad ideas have victims. And I thought that's what you did here, but probably in a much more winsome way than I do. And so, guys, here's what Nancy says. I mean, this is just, this is, I want you to think about that. This is phenomenal. You say every forward movement of the secular moral revolution is hailed as an advance for freedom from the oppressive moral rules of the past. But in reality, every step empowers the state. A rapid expansion of state power began with abortion because in the past, the law recognized personhood as a pre-existing reality, something that followed uh, metaphysically on just being biologically human. The law merely recognized it as a prior fact. But the only way the state can legalize abortion is to deny the relevance of biology and declare that some biological humans, Nancy, are not persons. So the state has taken on itself the authority to decide which humans 
qualify for the status of personhood, defined in terms of mental abilities, the capacity to think, feel, and desire. <gasps> the same reasoning is now being applied to euthanasia and assisted suicide as well. There's the consequences. But then you say, what about marriage? In the past, the state recognized marriage as a pre-existing reality, something that followed naturally on the fact that uh, humans are a sexually reproducing species. The law merely recognized it as a prior fact. But the only way the law can treat a same-sex couple the, way, the same as an opposite-sex couple is to deny the relevance of biology and declare marriage to be a state of mind, what you think, feel, and desire. So the state has taken on itself the authority to determine, uh, the authority to define what marriage is and which emotional commitments qualify as marriage. So once again, whether it's the personhood of the preborn and the personhood of every human or marriage itself, we've given over to the state the authority to, to make sense of those issues. Then you say, what about gender? In the past, the state recognized gender as a pre-existing reality, something that followed metaphysically on your biological sex. The law merely recognized it as a prior fact. But the only way the law can treat a trans woman, born male, the same as a biological woman, is to deny the relevance of biology and declare gender to be a state of mind, what you think, feel, and desire. Uh, uh, the state is taking on itself the authority to define legal gender independent of your biological sex. And then you say, finally, what about parenthood? In the past, the state recognized parenthood as a pre-existing reality, something that followed metaphysically when a mother and father give birth to a child. The law merely recognized it as a prior fact. But the only way the, the law can treat same-sex parents, the same as opposite-sex parents, is to deny the relevance of biology and declare parenthood to be a state of mind toward the child, what you think, feel, and desire. In the process, the state is taking on itself the authority to define what a parent is and who qualifies as one. And then you conclude with this. Significantly, in each case, the state has taken the postmodern approach of dismissing natural realities and substituting legal fiat. It refuses to be held in check by respect for the created world. The concept of contract is sold to the public as a way of expanding choice. But in reality, it cuts us off from natural created relationships and hands over power to the state. In other words, what you did in this section, Nancy, was communicate. You appeal to people's selfish, self-interested desires by saying, in remaining apathetic towards this alternative religion of body self-dualism, while you may think that you're the peaceful, utopian, progressive culture warrior, you will one day wake up and find that all of your other rights have been taken away as well. Because in rejecting the natural order and the created world as the objective grounding for human rights, you will necessarily give over to someone else, namely the state, the authority to define those institutions, those relationships, and those beings. And if history teaches us anything, it's that when a big government gets to determine who's a person and who isn't, and who deserves to have kids and who doesn't, it never goes well. So I, I want you to comment on all of that because I found that to be the most powerful part of your book. You you have memorized it. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> I I love uh, I when I speak publicly on Lovely Body, I love to end with this because people people think it's just you know this law that law individual laws. No, it's the underlying political philosophy that is informing all of these issues. For example, you know you start with abortion. 
the, the way I put it is you said a pre-existing fact. I often call it a pre-political right. Mm, In other words, right. a free society is only possible if the state recognizes some rights as pre-political, which means yep. the state does not create them. The state merely recognizes them. And so the right to life used to be thought to be a pre-political right. It's, yeah. not, it's something you have just because you're a human being. You're a member yeah. of the human race. So the state doesn't create it. It just recognizes your right to, to exist. Right. Um, and what many people don't realize, you know, I, I try to tell audiences, you know, you have not known this, but since 1973, you no longer have human rights just because you're human. Because essentially what the state says is, yeah, the fetus yep. is human. But yep. that doesn't give it any rights. That doesn't give it, that doesn't warrant legal protection. That doesn't yep. give it any moral standing. So being right. human is no longer enough for yeah. human rights. No this is enough. huge. That's right. And then being you human, say the same reasoning is now being applied to euthanasia and assisted suicide as well. Oh, oh yeah. And, and most people can kind of see that. You know, if, if the fetus does not become a person until it acquires certain cognitive functioning, self-awareness yeah. and so on then what happens if you lose that cognitive functioning well then you go back to being just a person in fact bioethicists will actually use the language only a body it's only yeah. a body now and so yeah. at that point you can be disconnected <laughs> you know your your food and water can be discontinued you know your medicine yep. can be stopped your your organs can be harvested because you are being human i mean they recognize that it's that the it, you're still dealing with a human being the, the best known example, and most audiences still know this, was Terry Schiavo. Yeah. Uh, well, everyone knows. Remind our, was... remind our younger viewers about that. Right. What, uh, what year was that? Um, but it was, it was the most, probably the most publicized euthanasia yeah. event. It was a young woman, young woman who had a cardiac arrest and, and uh, suffered brain damage. And her family wanted to sustain her. They, they still loved her, but her husband wanted her to. To, to be, uh, they wanted he wanted the the plug to be pulled so that she would That's die, right. and it also it actually went to court and the court said yeah pull the plug. Wow. Um, so it turned out to be uh, people still most people still remember the Terry Sharbo case. But my point yep. is, nobody denies that she was still human. Yep. <laughs> she had lost some cognitive functioning, but she was still she had not become an alien species. Yep. So she was clearly still human and yet the argument was she's she does not have human rights yeah. so it's it was another example of where we're heading like you said is the underlying worldview is you can be human now and that's no longer the basis for human rights the whole yeah. concept of human rights has changed and most of us are not aware of that yet um, yep. so that's why it's so important to go over what well, the what you just went over is well if, if we don't have human rights just for being human what are they based on well, mm. whoever has the most power, which yep. is the state, ultimately, even if the state delegates the power to individual women uh, on That's whether right. to have an abortion. In principle, it's the state that has decided. This was all the way back in Roe v. Wade. What Justice Blackmun said, uh, the, the 14th Amendment does not apply to the unborn because the unborn is yep. not a person. And yep. he recognized if the fetus was a person, then it would be protected. Under the 14th yet. Amendment. So, so we must declare it's not a person. So that's when it yep. started. And I, I look at my audience and I say, I point to them. I say, you, 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 you think you have human rights just because you're human. Because of Obi-Wade, you don't. Yep. You know, logically, you don't. 
maybe it takes a while for a culture to work out the logic, but it has accepted the premise that yep. you no longer have rights just because you're human. Yep. And th this stuff has more consequences than we could possibly imagine. The, the, the most furthest right, kooky, slippery slope conservative pundit from 1960 could not have predicted how far down the slippery slope we would be in 2022. I, the, 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 the most slippery slopest conservative pundit could not have, have guessed the, the heights, the, the depths to which we have slipped. Um, we are now chopping off, lopping off the healthy body parts of young children, teenagers, and young adults because we're telling them the body doesn't matter. And in many cases, their parents are paying for it or their degenerate school teachers are, are discipling them into the religion of transgenderism. 65 million babies were more murdered in the womb because of 1973 in America alone because of transgenderism. Uh, gay marriage itself, we didn't even talk about homosexuality and, and how body self-dualism really provides the animating worldview behind that as well. But I, I know we're long on time here, Nancy, but I, I, I wanted to ask you one or two final questions and, and kind of let you finish us off. I, if you have anything burning on your heart, by the way, please share it. But Jeff McMahon, uh, this pro-abortion philosopher, once made a very, very, very interesting and damning admission about the problematic nature of his own worldview. Uh, and it's and he kind of affirms what you argue in that section of freedom that dissolves freedom in your book, Love Thy Body. Um, and he admits, Nancy, Jeff McMahon, very popular pro-abortion philosopher, that, that his own pro-abortion worldview cannot make sense of human equality or defend human equality. And so let me just quote someone on the other side of the aisle who hates you and I and probably would like to see us thrown in gulags and wants abortion legalized through point of birth. And here's what he says. He said, he said this in one of his books. I forget which one. He said, all this leaves me profoundly uncomfortable. It seems virtually unthinkable to abandon our egalitarian commitments. And yet, but yet the, the challenges um, to our position support skepticism about the compatibility of our beliefs with the fact that the properties on which our moral status appears are all matters of degree. He says, it's hard to avoid the sense that our egalitarian commitments rest on distressingly insecure foundations. So, I mean, this is like one of the most renowned, beloved pro-abortion <laughs> defenders and authors on the abortion side of the aisle. And he's publicly said, if I'm paraphrasing, uh, Nancy Piercy's right. Uh, that in accepting a two-story uh, body uh, person dualistic view of the person, I don't know how to argue for human equality and ensure my own rights because those challenges being brought by those Nancy Piercy-like people support skepticism about, about combining our beliefs with the fact that the properties on which my moral status appears are degreed properties. Because if it's not based on the fact that you just have a human body, then it has to be based on something subjective. And if it's based on something subjective, then it's based on accidental properties and functions. Oh, all, oh wait, all functions come in varying degrees. So then might makes right, and the strong get to decide the litmus test for who, who lives and who dies. Did you have any that's, thoughts on that? That's a great quote, and I'll give you another one. <laughs> put, in your, put in your back pocket so you can pull it out and situations like this. So one of my favorite authors is uh, Richard Rorty. Rorty was mm -hmm. a well-known American philosopher. He was sometimes dubbed the philosopher of democracy, um, a political philosopher. But he said, 
Um, I don't know how to ground philosophy, excuse me, de democracy. I don't know how to ground democracy in any philosophical way. And you go, <laughs> what? And then he, he expands on it. Um, he says, uh, what, what is the basis of universal human rights? He mm. said, well, I'm a Darwinist. I'm an evolutionist. And that cannot be the basis of universal human rights because in Darwinism, the, the, the strong survive and the weak are left behind. So yep. that cannot be the basis of universal human rights. He yep. says, well, well, where do I get it from? He literally says, I reach over to our Judeo-Christian heritage and borrow from it. <laughs> stealing from and God. He, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, stealing from God, and he, but here's his words. He says, I'm a freeloading atheist. Freeloading, that's his term. I'm a freeloading <laughs> atheist because I'm very happy to freeload from a Judeo-Christian background, because it's really the only basis for universal oh, human rights. So that's so brutally quote? honest. That's so brutally honest. Wow. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And and incredible, but incredibly cynical and selfish too, right? It, it's a proxy war against God's sovereignty and the Imago Dei, but you just want to make sure that your rights are not compromised. So you'll borrow from the Christian worldview. You'll 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 row in the streams of liberty but you'll deny its source. Uh, I mean, I incredibly powerful. G.K. Chesterton, Nancy, uh, once said, one, the, the premier Christian public voice against eugenics in the early mm -hmm. 1900s, one of the only ones, and, and shame on the churches and Christians that allowed Chesterton to be the lone Christian voice against eugenics and Sanger and Leon Whitney and Madison Grant and Ernst Rudin and all the people that he was contending against. But G.K. Chesterton said he flipped, he flipped the left's irrational fear of a Christian theocracy on its head to prove that the only real theocracy in America was the theocracy of secular humanism. And, and so Chesterton said, the thing that is really tyrannizing through government is science. The thing that really does use the secular arm is science. And the creed that really is levying tithes and capturing schools, the creed that really is enforced by fine and imprisonment, the creed that is really proclaimed not in sermons but in statutes and spread not by pilgrims but by policemen, that creed is the great but disputed system of thought which began with evolution and has ended in eugenics. Oh, yeah. Because eugenics is the natural conclusion of Darwinism. Oh, yeah. Survival of the fittest. Absolutely. I mean, Galton yep. was right. His, his, what, his, nephew, his nephew was right. Um, yeah. In fact, I was teaching uh, yesterday in my classroom. Um, we were doing the origin of the universe. And one of the key astronomers is Robert Jastrow, who actually wrote a book called God and the Astronomers. Um, hmm. And he himself is an agnostic, identifies as an agnostic. But he says... Um, ever since the Big Bang, it's been clear that the universe had a beginning, and therefore, if it had a beginning, there must be cause outside of the universe, so hmm. outside of time, outside of space, an incredibly powerful intelligence to create this complex universe. Um, so he's very open about the fact that science is now supporting Christianity, even though hmm. he does not identify as a Christian, which is really interesting. But, but... The quote that I sent out to my students yesterday was where he says the same thing. He said it's, it's, a, it's a religion. For many yeah. scientists, evolution has become a religion. And the reason they don't want to acknowledge the Big Bang, well, today everybody's trained in the Big Bang. So maybe uh, my, my students and others are not quite so aware what a big controversy it was. I can still remember when scientists yeah. were arguing that matter is eternal. 
and therefore, you know, which is proven by science because of the law of conservation of matter and energy, you know, matter can't be created or destroyed. So clearly, Christianity is wrong. <laughs> it's contrary to science because it says matter was created. There, boom, we got rid of Christianity just like that. Well, that's what yeah. I grew up with. So the Big Bang was wow. really um, was, was an enormous challenge to the to philosophical materialism. The idea that matter is the only thing right. that exists and it's been around since eternity. Um, in, in fact, there was a very famous physicist, uh, Arthur Eddington, who said, who said, I find the idea of a beginning to the universe philosophically repugnant. <laughs> and Interesting. I said, I, philosophically repugnant. He said, I don't <laughs> like the idea that the universe had a beginning, even though I have to acknowledge that science is going that way. So wow. all that to underscore <laughs> what you, where you started today, which was that secular humanism has become a religion. And, yeah. and, and Robert, Robert Jastrow, the, the guy who wrote God and the Astronomers, God and the Astronomers, makes the point that it is religious. It's, it's a religious commitment that every event that occurs must have a natural cause. Right. And that's why we can't accept God. Well, okay, that's called <laughs> naturalism. That's a philosophical assumption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> Naturalism wow. or materialism, they're kind of the same thing. But anyway, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he, even as a science, he was saying, look, guys, as a, excuse me, as a scientist, he was acknowledging that this has become, a, a, has religious status for many scientists. Yep, yep. Wow. Yeah, that's incredibly powerful. Man is fundamentally a religious being. Uh, we yeah, come yeah. from God and eternity is written on the heart of man. And so we, we tend to operate as religious beings, uh, because we are. Um, I'll leave you with this, Nancy, and then uh, and then if you have a final send-off for Christians and pro-lifers in this moment, feel free to say it. Ultimately, what we're talking about is we're talking about man's pursuit to remake himself. It's an alternative creation story. Uh, we, we want to burn everything down to the ground, obliterate the Imago Dei and nature itself to liberate ourselves uh, and remake ourselves. And C.S. Lewis, the other cultural prophet up there with Chesterton, who was a son of Issachar, the men who understood the times and knew what the people of God should do. Lewis once said, for the power of man to make himself what he pleases means, as we have seen, the power of some men to make other men what they please. Right. And that's where this is heading. That's where this is headed. And that's where we are now. Yes. That, yeah, the, I love that quote from Lewis because he does show that this is a question of power. It's, it's not just a matter of getting your ideas right. It's a matter of some ideas gaining political power over the rest of us. That's right. Um, but, but what I like to leave people with is that I still find that many Christians don't know how to argue this positively. And so I always leave people with phrases that they almost have to memorize. Like, um, do you remember the story where the young woman said, I came to, I wanted to honor my body by living in, living in accord with the creator's design, you know, former mm -hmm. lesbian. So I, I leave people with the, a, a small list of phrases like honor my body, <laughs> live mm -hmm. in accord with the creator's design, you know, respect your biological identity, live in harmony, with who God created you, uh, live, love your body. Live, love your There you go. <laughs> to, to summarize it, yeah, love your body. And and I find that many people almost have to uh, you know, practice using that mm. language because it's so contrary to the way that they have been raised and, and the right. way that they tip. You know, I mean, our our reputation is that we're negative, right? We're we're, we're moralistic, and we're you know, this is wrong. It's a sin. It's against the Bible. Don't do it. 
and there's something wrong with you. Right, right, right. That's the message we often convey. And so right. I think that's kind of like a first step is can you get yep. past, you drop the negative message. Uh, what's going to win the hearts of postmodern young people? As right, a positive right. message where we show yeah. that the reason we're saying this is because we care about you. We care. That's good. And because we want you to see that there's a worldview that's going to give you know beauty and meaning to your life. Um, yep. And it's going to say even your body has value and dignity, and you should value it. Well, that's teleology, right? Mm -hmm. That if you if you live out the purpose for which you were made, um, that that's going to be the most fulfilling thing. Um, so, Nancy, thank you. It's, it's so incredibly powerful. I appreciate your time and blessing us and helping us understand all of these religious, spiritual battles that masquerade as quote unquote cultural and political battles. Um, guys, go check out Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body, Total Truth. She's written many books. You can connect with her at her website. We'll put all the links in the show notes as well. Uh, Nancy, thank you for your time today. Oh, it was wonderful. Um, I, I, it's really fun to talk to somebody who's so well, so well versed on these issues. So yeah, <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. Well, my goal is to be that Ezekiel Watchman blowing the trumpet, a son of Issachar, and uh, you are a daughter of Issachar, and you have <laughs> been for some time. You understand the times like few do. And so if you guys are not reading Nancy Piercy's writings, you're missing out. Uh, thank you, Nancy. We'll have you on another time. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you guys for joining the show today. Head on over to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube. Give the show a rating and review. Let us know what you think. Google saying they're cracking down on abortion misinformation and disinformation, which of course is only going to be applied to pro-lifers. So subscribe at YouTube. Uh, help us grow that channel. Uh, go follow our YouTube uh, or a channel on Rumble because one day I probably will get digitally assassinated and thrown into a YouTube gulag. Uh, and so when that happens, go subscribe over at Rumble so that you're following all of the show. And if you're an audio podcast listener, leave us a rating and review on iTunes iTunes podcast. It drives up the show. More people see it. We really appreciate it. If you want to join the White Rose Resistance and become an ally of the White Rose as I rebuild the White Rose Resistance for this generation against our silent but far more deadly holocaust of abortion, go to thewhiterose.life, thewhiterose.life. In fact, there's a lot of fascinating parallels between Sophie Scholl and Hans Scholl and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Christian resistance in Germany and everything that Nancy Piercy's written about. Maybe we'll do a fun episode on those links sometime. If you want to book me for an event or see my speaking schedule online, go to sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com. And if you want to check out our National White Rose Resistance live tour, nine churches on the books between two weeks ago and the end of November before my third child's born, go to thewhiterose.life forward slash events, thewhiterose.life forward slash events, Turning Point Faith sponsored and promoted tour all around the country about the eugenic, Nazi-esque, bigoted, racist legacy and genesis of the abortion industrial complex, Sanger's pals and buddies, and how they influenced the Nazis to weave the thread of ideas through our current cultural and political moment to how we got to where we are today and why we need Christian resistance like 20 years ago uh, before it's too late. If you want to bring that tour to your church in 2023, because this year's full, go to thewhiterose.life forward slash events. And until next week, I'm I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted.